Before I start, I have to urge parents with children with sensitive ears to watch or listen to this important episode later when they aren't around. The topic is adult in nature and not appropriate for children at school. You have until the music finishes. Righteous anger is boiling over against a book being marketed, displayed, and sold for children as young as the tender age of eight, which, among many other grossly age-inappropriate and objectively harmful behaviours, instructs them on how to illegally send explicit images of themselves to other people, setting them up for exploitation and humiliation. But the debate I'll be having right now with my friend and newly elected Libertarian Party MP in New South Wales, John Ruddock, is should the book and anything like it be banned? And would Jesus want so-called religious right commentators and activists like myself, Lyle Shelton, Kiralee Smith, Rachel Wong, and Moira Deeming to be seeking to change legislation instead of the hearts of parents who might buy this for their young children? To both questions, John Ruddock has said no, but I believe he's wrong. It's going to be an insightful and interesting conversation. I'm Dave Pello, and this is The Church and State Show. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, you're going to love this conversation and you're also going to love the conversations and education at the church and state events in your city. Church and State is arming Christians to influence culture. Check out when we're bringing excellent speakers to your neck of the woods on the website, churchandstate.com.au. And if you can't see one within driving distance soon, talk to your pastor about hosting an event there soon with our help. The discount code to save 20% on tickets is in the show notes below this episode. Register today at churchandstate.com.au. Well, my guest today is a lifelong dyed blue in the wool liberal who literally wrote the book on reforming the Liberal Party and was largely successful. But cynical of the Liberal Party leader's willingness to let the democratic reforms renew the Liberal Party at the cost of their own control, he put his money where his mouth was and showed them how to get elected without woke depravity or weak imitations of the authoritarian Labor-Green coalition. Welcome to the newest member of the New South Wales Upper House, keeping the major parties honest, John Ruddock. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much for having me. My very great pleasure, John. John, you tweeted yesterday that the political question is whether the state should ban this book. The answer to that must be no. When the state starts banning things, it is a slippery slope. We're better off accepting we live in a free society and sometimes 
that means things will happen that some think are repugnant. And you certainly added your agreement with that sentiment. You also said, I agree with David Limbrick. This is for parents to police, not the state. And I very much hope they do. When I read the wise words of Jesus, I see a teacher who is concerned with changing people's heart and not coercing them. He taught that if a man wants to commit adultery in his heart, then in God's eyes, he already has. If we ban a book, but some people still desire to read it, then we haven't changed any hearts, but we have empowered a busybody state, ending the quote. So, John, my first question is, do you not believe in the place for classification boards, including its right to refuse classification, which formally bans books from sale and distribution in Australia? Uh, yeah, look, generally speaking, I don't believe in uh, politicians and bureaucrats setting up classification boards. Now, what we have seen in the last few days, Dave, is a classic example of why we don't need government censorship. We've had this appalling book come out. The Sydney Morning Herald has twice written it itself. Oh, it's just a book about sex education. It's nothing about that. Well, it, it's a lot more than that. OK, now I am a unity ticket, Dave, with you and a lot of your listeners that this is an appalling book. And I very much hope that uh, young children do not read it. I think it's a dangerous book. OK, but then the question is, so we are on a unity ticket when it comes to the moral question. But what we have seen this week about the political question is, I think you're saying, and you know we're mates, okay, but we're having a polite disagreement here. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you are saying, no, I want the state to come down and force our behaviour under the threat of violence, because that's what the government is at the end of the day. The government's got power because it can, it can threaten violence, and it does threaten violence, okay. Uh, it does, it does you, it execute violence. Now, what we saw this week is that without a classification board, well, they didn't get involved in this one, obviously, we had magnificent people like yourself and Kiralee Smith and Rachel Wong rise up, educate the community, say, look, this book's for sale, and the people, the people with, without government involvement, the people rose up, and now the book has been largely withdrawn. Now you can get it online, I think you can get one or two bookshops, but it's basically been, uh, it, it's been sort of without the government being involved, it has largely been censored. Now, this is the better way forward. I think there should be more of it. We saw it with Bud Light in the United States recently. Bud Light's sales have crashed. It's not because of the government, okay, it's because of people rising up, okay, and this is how it should be done. The problem with banning things, and look, in my heart, I want to ban this book, in my heart. But my head says, hey, John, if we, if we give the government the power to start banning this book, then the government's going to say, okay, well, we're going to ban this book and everyone agrees we should ban this book. Well, then we're going to ban this book. And then it's just going to grow. Now, then, the, thing, then the, the, the community mood might change at some point. Then they might want to start saying, oh, well, look, we'll ban these books. Let's ban a whole new category of books. Let's, we, we, censorship is, across history, it's the baddies who do censorship. Government, look, there the are government a couple of fallacies. censorship. Yep, sorry. Uh, sorry, uh, just a slight delay there. Um, look, there are a couple of issues I have uh, with, with your argument. Uh, one is that classifications, standards, and ratings and censorship, if we're going to use that word, uh, which isn't inappropriate for, I guess, my preferred outcome, the standards don't increase. They, they decrease. What we've seen in, in demonstrated history is that over the decades of censorship standards, uh, the 
sensitivity to immorality, violence, sexuality, drugs on screen, smoking, alcohol, uh, nudity, all of those standards actually reduce and decrease. And society is not effective at safeguarding uh, the, the the places that should be safe for families, public places. We see the most explicit soft porn displays in shopping centres by Honey Burdett shops. And there's no level of, of consumer activism which has uh, disincentivized them from going ahead. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, all books should be banned and we should have a very strict thing. But I do think that even in a libertarian philosophy, the very limited role that we imagine government should have as opposed to no government is the prevention of harm to people and property. We don't let kids get tattoos. We don't let kids get tobacco products. We don't let kids um, get married at less than 16. Um, and we don't let kids... Uh, be exploited and and have images of themselves sent around the internet, either between themselves or or strangers. And I think this is on the far side of harms that should be prevented. And I don't even think it's a hard call. Uh, there's a whole lot of books out there that I don't think parents should have, and I'm not suggesting, and I don't think anybody's suggesting that uh, our opinions and our sensitivities should be legislated. But Legislation does exist and the line can be drawn and must be drawn somewhere. And I, I think even consistent with a libertarian philosophy that that has to be on the near side and, and the benefit of the doubt of protecting our most vulnerable uh, and, and impressionable citizens in this society. And that is children. Well, look, there, there has been a consensus has emerged over the last you know, few centuries that a, a, a child is somebody over the, under the age of 18 and an adult is somebody over the age of 18. Now, of course, some people mature a little bit earlier, mentally, physically, whatever, some a little bit later. But let, we have just sort of drawn a line in the sand, I think it's probably pretty accurate, that up to the age of 18, a human being is a child. Now, libertarians believe very strongly in parental rights. And we believe that the parents should be policing what their kids are exposed to. And the truth is, most parents, even if they sort of are, are not great citizens, generally in society, most parents are very loving parents. Now, yes, there's some, there are some bad parents out there. That is true. But the government also makes bad decisions. So we, we, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Do we want our parents to police our children's behaviour and what they're exposed to, or do we want that, that, that threshold to be set by politicians and bureaucrats? Now, now the libertarian says that yes, some, a small number of parents will make mistakes, but we believe that when we empower politicians and bureaucrats that they will make more mistakes and we're outsourcing that to the politicians and bureaucrats and we're empowering the politicians and bureaucrats we are distrustful of, of, of big government and we, we think that, that generally we trust the parents more. Now, there will be some parents out there, Dave, a really small number, who have gone and bought this book for their, for their uh, children. 
Okay, and I think that is a tragedy. Okay, but I mean, we could have all the censorship in the world, and those parents are probably still going to get this uh, this this material in front of their kids. So whether the, whether we have a censorship uh, a, a classification board or not, it is going to happen on remote occasions. I think that we are much better off using community activism. And so, so when someone is upset, like a lot of viewers on your show will be very upset about this book, and then they and then they will sit around and they'll say. The government's got to do something about this. I want people to move on from that mindset. I want people to have the mindset saying, okay, this book is dangerous. How can I mobilize with other like-minded people in the community to do everything I can to prevent as many young little eight-year-old kids looking at this book as possible? That's the better way to go. Yeah. Let's come back to the mindset question um, because I want to deal with the the major point you just made before um, moving to mindset. And and I don't disagree with that point. But the the major point you're making is essentially um, that you distrust government to draw a line. And in principle, I agree. Everything you said philosophically, I resonate with. I don't trust government. We've seen over the last three years that government is untrustworthy. But that doesn't diminish or, or counter the reality that there must be a line, that we're not suggesting, and I think it's reckless to suggest that government not be involved in, in enforcing a duty of care for parents. This is not a new concept and it's not a revolutionary or even authoritarian concept. It's a basic concept that government says to parents, you are the authorities in your children's life. And all of Christendom agrees with that. All of biblical Christendom, anyway, <laughs> agrees that parents are the sole and, and first caregivers of children. And it is not up to the state or bureaucrats to dictate the values or how those children are raised. But it is up to the civil authority uh, as well as the community. But there is a place for civil authority to say no to parents that are intentionally or unintentionally neglecting or abusing and harming their children. We've we've got very sensible things. And yes, sometimes those laws go too far. But I think for the sake of children, we should certainly err on the side of caution if there's some debate about it. Now, the sexualization of children with the kind of explicit and entirely age-inappropriate content that is in this, not to mention incitement to illegal behavior and harmful behavior makes this a no-brainer. And so I think while I agree with all of the philosophies you've said, I disagree with the application of those philosophies in this case. And and so, uh, and not, not even in this case, but in, in this example, um, because there should be all kinds of books like this that are, are perverting the sexuality and the the gender identity of children. And I mean that in the technical sense, not in the moralistic sense, but they are uh, corrupting and corroding the the identity formation of these children. And that's something that we have to be especially care of. And we've got epidemics in mental health, especially amongst young people. And more of the same is not going to help those children who we have a public duty of care for to ensure that they're not being exposed to um, this kind of material, which is harmful, incitement to harm and harmful behaviours, as well as illegal behaviours. This is where, look, I totally believe the state should stay out of 
sex ed altogether, and that is a parent's responsibility. But I, I just don't find, because I agree with all of the philosophies you articulated, I still disagree with the application of them in this case. Uh, and ultimately, what the implications of your argument are is that there should be no line and there should be no uh, censorship board, no ratings board to say this is appropriate for eight-year-olds, this is appropriate for 15-year-olds, and, and this isn't appropriate for publication in Australia anyway. I mean, there's there's obviously things that we shouldn't allow, like the the publication of, of material which incites or instructs people how to commit acts of terrorism. Those are sensible things, uh, or, or, you know, how to commit frauds against banks and, and other such. Those kind of things are very... This is just, we're saying there has to be a line, there is a line, and the debate is only really, I think, and I hope you can concede this, the line exists and the debate has to be about where that line is drawn, and I don't think um, the philosophy is healthy if it doesn't lead to concluding that uh, this material is on the other side of that line which should be drawn. Well, look, we are largely on a unity ticket. I mean, I don't know. I know a lot of parents. I can't think of one parent that I know, and I know probably know hundreds, if not thousands, who would say, "Bring, bring home this book to their children." Okay, so we are on a unity ticket there. The question is, how do we sort of uh, prevent? Uh, what, what is going to minimise uh, kids having access to this? I fear that if mm. we go and censor it, it becomes a, fit, a forbidden fruit. And will actually make some people more curious of it. I think we are better off sort of saying, look, if, if your mum and dad want to buy it for you and they want you to read it, well, we think that's a poor parenting decision, but we're not going to physically come in there and send in the police and stop them doing it. Now, the other point, interesting point is this, Dave, right? So we've had this debate going on for a few days, raging along, okay, and the right wingers have, you know, have, have made, made uh, you know, made some positive gains because it has been withdrawn and I'm happy about that, withdrawn in many cases. But you know, but it's only been withdrawn from the shelves in Big W. Dimmicks is still selling it, bookstores are still selling it and Big W is still selling it online. So well, I, I don't Dave, accept the well, assumption that well, the consumption is going to be little or increased by banning, by banning. Dave, if, okay, so I wasn't aware of that. Okay, so therefore this campaign hasn't ended. Let's not let's not get the government involved. This camp. Let's let's go and have protests against Adimic. Let's let, let the people that have done a, a good job with Big W. They should keep going. I'm just saying we don't want the government to get involved. And I'll tell you why. I don't, another reason we don't want the government to get involved is this. John, can I just um, make a point before you move on? There, the reason that I've read that Big W uh, has removed this is not because of consumer activism but because some people went too far, and I think this is not wise or, or good behaviour on the part of people who agree with you and I on, on the value of this content, but they actually were abusing staff in Big W, and it was not for economic reasons or market forces or ethical concerns about the information being uh, pumped into little children, but it was merely out of workplace health and safety that uh, Big W said, look, um, our staff are at risk from e extreme violent opposition to this book. Now okay. I think that's inappropriate and there should be no threat of harm to Big W staff. Yeah, um, Dave, but I, Dave, an important point on there, I do want to interrupt is, okay, so this is their claim, okay? Everyone, everyone's, a, everyone's a movie producer these days because they've, everyone's got a mobile phone, right? Which has all got a video. Okay, You're if right. this is, I am skeptical, I'm with you, 
We do. We always want to be civil, particularly to staff that's got nothing to do with them. Okay, but I am sceptical. We always hear these claims mm. about right wingers going in there and threatening violence and everything. Okay, take a video of it. Take a video. I haven't seen one video of it. Okay, I suspect it's hyped up. No, I think I think the consumer. The very consumer, well said, John. I think you're you're right. That's very credible. The consumer the consumer campaign has, and I think it shouldn't. I think it should keep going. Okay, mm. and I think and, and and people can read it in the Sydney Morning Herald. They say, "Oh, this is a sex education book." No, no, no. Go on. Okay, if, if people believe that, go and buy it before you show it to your kids. You you read it first. We won't talk about on this show uh, some of the graphic details in it. Look, I think uh, you know. Well, John, uh, actually, I, I think it's probably appropriate to to with some restraint um, talk about the details because sure. they're, they're very pertinent. I, I don't want to be gross. Um, but there should be nobody with little children listening to this anymore. And, and again, we don't want to be be gross about it. But um, some of the behaviours in this are, <laughs> are very unhealthy sexual behaviours, even for adults. And to be um, not just giving sex education, but actually graphically instructing how to some of these behaviours is well beyond the pale of, of what a civil society should permit, in my opinion. Oh yeah, look, look. Some of the some of the sexual practices in there, I can tell you from, from my, what I have seen, are very obscure for adults. Okay, I mean, I'm 52. I've been to the uh, the pub with the boys and uh, had had discussions over beers. Some of these practices that are mentioned in this book, which we are told is designed for you know, eight to twelve year olds, uh, I have never heard grown men talk about any of these practices. Okay, but Dave, I've got a really important point I want to make. Okay, Please. so we've got this. We've got this on the one side. We've got this this you know Yumi Stein's book you know issue. On the other side of Australian politics at the moment, we've got. The this uh, ACMA, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation. The government's planning to, you know, bring in legislation to force social media to take down posts that, you know, have misinformation and disinformation. We know what that's all about. Okay, it's a. Uh, I don't think I don't think the government is particularly concerned now about vaccine scepticism or COVID scepticism because that's in the rearview mirror. I think they are concerned about, I think they want to shut people up online who have global warming scepticism and, you know, maybe have an alternative view on the transgender issue. That's the two big issues that they want to suppress debate on. Now, people like you and your listeners are 100% on our side when we say, no, 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 the government shouldn't be sort of suppressing alternative views on global warming or suppressing alternative views on whatever the latest government narrative is that the government can't defend mm. and that's why they have to shut it down. So we're a unity ticket over here. No, 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 we don't want the government on that. But then the left says, the people who believe in those issues, they say, well, well, we don't believe in censorship either. But global warming is going to blow the whole planet up. We face an apocalypse. We're going to have, you know, the, 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 we're going to be walking around in 50 degree temperatures, you know, within a few years. Nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more important than shutting down those sceptics. OK, so everyone's always got a good reason to say, well, look, I believe in the free speech. But on this occasion, we've just got to get the government involved. Now, when we say the government, what is the government? The government is armed violence. OK, and people think, well, that's not the government. I say, no. You think if you don't pay a speeding ticket, a humble little speeding ticket, let's say I'm parked out the front of this studio and I get a speeding ticket for 300 bucks, let's say, and I don't pay it. 
And then I'm going to get, for the next 12 months, I'm going to get bills saying, Mr. Ruddick, you haven't paid your spe- speeding ticket. And I said, no, I'm not going to pay it. And the bill's, yep. going to, the bill's going to clock up, it's going to double. And I said, no, I'm not paying it. Okay, now eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be a sheriff or a police or someone at my door saying, John Ruddick, you're going to pay this back? I said, no, I'm not going to. At, at some point, the, and they will have a gun on them. And they will come in and they will physically arrest me and they will either incarcerate me or they will force payment. And that's, a, that's yep. the bot, at the bottom of all government behaviour. So the people asking for censorship, whether it's on the left or the right, they are actually saying, no, we don't want, uh, we, we, we don't want uh, you know, voluntary behaviours. We want, we, want, we want to force behaviour at the threat of a gun. And we've got to say... No. Now, I, I believe in condemning... I, I do agree, John. The, the ultimate conclusion of a civil authority is the use of force to enforce uh, the rules and regulations if resistance is, is consistently med, met. The, the logical conclusion is police will force you to with violence. Uh, I don't think that's inappropriate in and of itself. And I also don't believe that free speech is a is a license for absolute free speech. I, I uh, believe um, G.K. Chesterton said uh, there is an idea which stops ideas, and that is the only idea which ought to be stopped. Meaning that absolute free speech is a counterproductive, destructive uh, uh, force against free speech itself. For example, uh, I believe that free speech is best served by banning counter-protests. Counter-protests aren't there to express a political opinion. They exist nearly exclusively with the sole purpose of shutting down other people's free speech. And so to protect free speech, counter-protests should be forced to wait three hours or go uh, a kilometre away and have all of the counter-protest you like, as long as the effect, either intended or observable, mm. of your exercise is not the the harm to other people's exercise of their free rights. Yeah, Dave, Dave. Now, c- I don't c- think there's any kind of logical, valid equivalence between uh, the censorship of criticism of government and bad policies and child grooming abuse of children. Uh, I I think one is very clearly in the uh, column of tyranny and one is very clearly in the column of civility, righteousness and morality. The the basic duty of care that we owe to society is to protect children and promote contests of ideas. One is achieved with censorship and one is achieved without censorship. They're, They're not really in the same category. Dave, on your question, on your example of the counter-protest, I've been a victim of counter-protests, okay? I like a good street protest from time to time. And then, yeah, thugs come up and wreck it. Now, if we're going to bring in a law that says you can't have a counter-protest or you say you can move it, do it in an hour's time or we've got to be a kilometre away, we're then putting power in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats to determine what is a, a counter-protest. Okay, and that becomes a political decision. It's going to favour either left or right when, uh, you know, depending upon who's in power. So this is so it sounds good in theory, but in practice, if you're then going to, you know, restrict a counter protest, that's going to have consequences as well. Um, 
Um, um, it's probably a separate debate, and 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 I get that there is a, a valid debate there, but it is to illustrate the point that there is an exercise of freedom which is destructive to freedom. Is that something you can see that I've illustrated with that example? Well, okay, so look, in 1950, I'm, I'm, I admire and I like Robert Menzies very, very much as a prime minister. I think he was a terrific, terrific guy. In 1950, he's been in power for about six months. He passes a law banning the Communist Party of Australia. Now, this is at a time when the communists haven't just got the Soviet Union, they've just taken over half of Europe and enslaved it and put it into hell. They've just taken over China, the biggest country on the planet, and sent that to hell, okay? And then there was a active communist party in Australia with links to the trade union movement and elements in the media and the Labor Party. They were genuinely trying to overthrow Australian liberal democracy and basically make us all bow down to Joseph Stalin. That was reality. And so Robert Menzies banned, passed law to ban the Communist Party. And then the Communist Party took it to the High Court, the Communist Party of Australia, and the High Court says, well, sorry, you can't, that, that is an unconstitutional law, Mr. Prime Minister, you cannot do that. And so then Robert, and it was like a 6-1 decision, I think, okay, it wasn't close. They mm. said, look, this is a massive breach of our ancient liberties. Now then what did Robert Menzies do? He says, okay, no problem, High Court, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna put it to a referendum uh, and put it into our constitution so you can't override it. Okay, so it goes to the Australian people, and very narrowly, despite this, but this is now 1951, despite wow. communism being a genuine threat, unlike global warming, okay, this mm. was a real threat of people that genuinely wanted to lock people like you and me up, Dave, and shut down all free speech, the Australian people very wisely said, nah, nah, we're not going to support this constitutional amendment to ban the Communist Party. And then what happened to the Communist Party? They'd never got more than one percent of the vote. Okay, they were given the freedom to. They were given their freedom to have to say whatever they, they stupidly wanted. They're saying, "Yeah, capitalism's evil. Australia's evil. All the all the nonsense." They were able to say it freely, and no one paid any attention to them. That's the better way to deal with these things. Now, with with the it is, but it wasn't the happy ending you described. They simply infiltrated the Labor Party, forced all the Christian Catholics out and uh, yeah, made well. the, the, the trade union movement and the Catholic, the Labor Party, uh, extremely communist in, in their uh, narratives and, and platform. Well, I don't no. want to get sidetracked, Dave. You are correct, okay. But look, the, the, the <laughs> Labor Party was out of power for 23 years, and a big part of that was uh, that they were unelectable because, look, most people in the Labor yeah. Party were not communists, okay? But you look, are I, correct, I, there, I'm, there I'm was a communist element. With you. I'm yeah. instinctively with you on the liberty of political ideology and expression um, instinctively there. I just think this is a category error and it's not okay. related at all Dave, with to the, with harming the, children. With the harming children thing, okay. Let's say this book was sent out to every parent in Australia, okay? Every single one of them got it in the mail. Let's say that happened. I'm absolutely convinced 999 out of 1,000 parents, and I do not believe that's an exaggeration, would get this book and they would put it in the shredder. They would not let their kids see it. Okay, that's what I believe would happen. Now, one in 1,000 will. Okay, so you're, you're talking about bringing in this, you know, this, this big sort of, you know, censorship thing to prevent that one in 1,000, because uh, one in 1,000 parents will say, hey, look at this uh, eight-year-old eight child, 
Check I, this I don't stuff accept out. the premise, John. No, well, well, um, I'm not it, sure that it matters if it's only a few well, kids being harmed. Well, it, well, it's but kind of like a law yeah, against but, pedophilia. And no. If it was only one in a thousand, it would be too many. But do you but think the law the is premise. going to prevent I, I think it? The do vast you? number of people who vote for the Greens are going to love this book, and no, a significant number of people who vote for the Labor Party love this book. Um, these people are absolutely captured by uh, queer theory and this radical gender ideology, uh, which is included in this book, teaching. Like, they, they don't even talk about boys and girls in this book. They talk about penis owner and vagina owner. It's appalling. And this is the kind of people who dominate uh, SBS and ABC and their viewing audience, uh, the readers of the Fairfax papers. And or, I, I think it's... John, I think it's naive to think only one in a thousand people are going to buy or or accept uh, and promote the content in this book. I reckon you're right that there will. I don't think many Labor Party voters at all will like this book. Now, if there's any if supporters of any political party that will say, yeah, this is great, it will be Greens. Now, but I think it'll be a very small minority of them because you know, you know what makes people turn to the right side of the political spectrum more than anything else? It's not what suburb they live in. It's not what occupation there is. It's not even so much the age. It's having a child, making, giving you a, have, once you have a child, and this is why people vote for the Greens, their, 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 vote, their votes are almost always under the age of 30. Now, what happens at the age of 30 and then they start becoming Labor voters and Liberal voters when they get older? What happens? They have a child. They've got an investment in the next generation. It wises yep. them up. It wises them up. They understand a lot more about the world when they, when they have a beautiful little child. And even poor parents, poor in terms of bad parents, Everyone instinctively loves their children and they really want the best for their children. Their children becomes the focus of their life. And so I'm absolutely convinced that it'll be one in a thousand will say, hey, look, have check this out. It's great. Okay, now, but if that's happening, so you're asking for a censorship law to prevent that one in a thousand. Now, that's still a lot of kids. I accept that there's a lot of kids in a country, 25 million people, and it's a tragedy every single time it happens. This book can't do anything good for anybody. I'm with mm. you on that, Dave. But then... Uh, if we then come in and set up a government arm to sort of prevent people reading this book, well, guess what? It's going to circulate anyway. That's what's going to happen. So, and so we're going to still have the same John, problem. Let me, um, we're going to have the same problem, but then, but then we're going to have made the government even bigger in the process. Uh, well, I don't think it's going to make the government bigger to apply well, the laws properly. Um, they're there and this just needs to be applied. Um, what, what, let me put a, a hypothetical to you. In fact, it's not that hypothetical. There are books which have been classified by, uh, the, the board, the classification board currently promoted and, and, um, promoted in public libraries around Australia, which display pedophilia with adults, um, having sexual relationships with minors, with not not 16, 15-year-olds, with children. These are currently there. Do you think books promoting and instructing pedophilia should be permitted and never censored in Australia? No, no, I'm with you on that, Dave. Look, if they are explicitly promoting pedophilia and they've got images of it, uh, well, then the role, the state has a role in that situation, yes. So what about books that are teaching children to send sexually explicit images of themselves via a carriage service, internet or telephone? Well, I think that that's what's happened with this Yumi Stein book. Is that correct? 
it is in this Yumi Stein book that we're talking about. It's illegal. Right. But I, okay, so uh, look, I think that they are, um, I don't want to defend the book, okay? You don't want to use the book, but I think they're talking about sending uh, sexually explicit material of themselves to their, uh, their girlfriend or boyfriend, not to an adult. Am I correct on, on that? I believe so. Okay. Well, look, uh, there were no mobile phones when I was growing up. Okay. So um, this is happening a lot. Now, it does seem like an odd situation to me. I've got children. I've been, I've been telling them from they're very, very young, never in a million years ever do any, take a photo of yourself and send it to one. I've, I've told them at least a hundred times. Okay. And I think most parents have done that. But it is happening and, and I don't like it and it's very destructive, okay? But uh, look, I, I, I feel uncomfortable saying it, Dave, but look, the alternative is you're saying that we should get the police involved and ban it, okay? Well, look, I mean, I, I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm with I, you in I, my heart, I'm with you in my heart. I, I can't be, uh, I, I think we should campaign against it, but I don't think we need a law against it. And, and I'm, I don't feel comfortable about it, but that's the situation. We've achieved clarity. Let's uh, talk about the point you wanted to make uh, and you made in your tweet and, and let's, you, you want the campaign to change people's hearts. Yes. Um, let's just read that part of your tweet again. Uh, you said, when I read the wise words of Jesus, I see a teacher who was concerned with changing people's hearts and not coercing them. He taught that if a man wants to commit adultery in his heart, then in God's eyes, he actually already has. If we ban a book, but some people still desire to read it, then we haven't changed any hearts, but empowered a busybody state. Um, now, I, I uh, replied to your tweet and um, basically said, you're misrepresenting Jesus, please don't. Um, and you and I had a private phone call and uh, I conceded and agreed that, um, and, and, and then put this in a tweet reply as well, that you're not misrepresenting the red letter uh, body of Jesus's preaching, that he never advocated state coercion uh, with his recorded preaching. Um, but uh, what I wanted to convey to you and, and I guess to the viewing audience to understand that that's not actually accurate is that Jesus's teaching isn't limited to his red letter recorded teaching. Uh, that um, John 1 verse 1 actually says that for all of eternity, um, Jesus was the Logos, um, not just meaning the written and printed word contained in all of Scripture, which certainly is that, but all of truth itself. He was the entire universal embodiment of truth uh, in the flesh. Uh, and so certainly in as far as it means he is the word of God, eternal, um, that means that for all of eternity, everything that was recorded in Scripture or ever would be recorded in Scripture uh, was certainly something that Jesus embodied and harmonized with. And we see in Romans 13 that the Apostle Paul explains a place for civil authority to coerce behavior, uh, which uh, to punish the wrongdoer, he says, the, the civil authority bears the sword to punish the wrongdoer and reward the good. So I, I don't accept the, uh, the uh, opposition the, the, uh, I guess the assertion that Jesus is opposed to state coercion or or civil authority coercion. We, state is probably a, a too strong a word, um, but certainly civil authority it has a role, I think, in in God to coerce behaviour. Um, 
And, and I'll, I'll let you, um, I guess, explain further okay. what you're what you're saying. Uh, but I'll, I'll just respond very briefly, and then 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 let you um, uh, go. Uh, I don't think it's a case of having to choose between walking and chewing gum. I think we can focus on good laws, good policy, and focus on redeeming the hearts of wicked men, which is all of us without Jesus. And I'm not pointing fingers. Um, uh, we can do both, um, and, and we don't have to choose. Well, look, Dave, all my life I have been fascinated by the Bible, by Jesus, by Christianity. I'll probably be fascinated at, about those issues till the day I die. I, someone who has a, a strong interest in history since I was, since I was a teenager, I, I look at the historical figure Jesus and I am in awe of everything that's flowed from, that, uh, that, uh, from his life. Yes. Now, I don't want to get into the theology, Okay, but when I think of the historical figure, Jesus, I look at, which I believe is his greatest contribution, um, it, at least to our, our, our thinking about morality, was the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a version of it in Matthew, Mark and Luke, which in my view are the historically accurate accounts of his life. Now, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when I, there is, and I, it's sort of like the centrepiece in my view of what this, great teacher taught us. Now, very much. You're not he wrong. is not talking about go and lobby the Roman governor or, go, you know, do, do not go and lobby them to try and change the laws and then threaten people with violence to bring about the society that we want. It was entirely about becoming a good person in, in one's heart. And that's what he was concerned about. And, yep. and I mean, he was at war with the religious authorities and the political authorities in the end killed him. Okay, so he wasn't interested. He was he was uh, he was an evangelist for you know let's make people people better on the inside. Okay, now yes. I know that there will be people listening who will say, "Oh well, this is this is you know not uh, accurate Christian theology, John." I, and I say, "I won't argue with you about that. This is I'm just telling you how I see it." Okay. Now, yep. now, then when we have, so then Jesus... You, for the record, you haven't said anything wrong in okay. just these last 30 seconds. Okay. Now, Even then we have more than half of the New Testament. And look, Christianity is the biggest religion in the world, okay? And in my view, it's been a very good influence on mankind, okay? So that's why I like it, okay? Amen. Okay, now, now then, then more than half of the New Testament is written by Paul, okay? who never met Jesus, but obviously was the guy that brought the Jesus message. In my view, he brought it very accurately to the wider world. And I think he is also a great man. Now, half of his writings, which we now can, which the, the church considers holy scripture, Paul had no idea it was going to be holy scripture. He was just writing a letter to his friends in Galatia or C Corinth or, you know, some, I think when he wrote some of these books, he, he knew, knew it would be scripture. Uh, but I think these you're, are just, you're uh, okay. assuming a lot of facts, not in evidence. Okay. Well, well, these seem to be just quite casually written letters, and we, we, that the good thing about that is we can really see what's in his heart. And you did. Uh, I dispute the casual. There were certainly letters between communities, um, but uh, he also very clearly 
instructed that once they were uh, received and read amongst a church in one city, that they should be shared and sent on to another. They, they weren't just casual. They were well, doctrinal instructions for Christian living. Okay. The book of Philemon is about, uh, you know, one chapter, and it's a very short little chapter, and it's just a little little sort of memo to his mate about his, uh, you know, an escaped slave, and he said, you know, you should give him his friend. That he, I do not believe Paul wrote that thinking, this is going to be considered holy scripture for the next, you know, 10,000 years. And I think that that is also the case with several of the other books, not quite as much as Philemon. But let's not get distracted by that. Sure, I, sure. It, it probably, just just to respond to the, the, the claim um, very briefly so we don't get distracted, I think it matters more what God intended for that letter. Okay. But, um, sure. Now, uh, when I see, we, we have extensive writings from Paul who was clearly a magnificent human being. Put aside his theology. There might be some viewers that think that, that it's all wrong. Okay, They might be Muslims or they might be atheists. But put, let's, let's say it is wrong for a moment, Okay, that it's not technically true. Paul was a really, really great guy, a terrific guy. He ends most of his letters urging people, look, be kind to your neighbours, be, be loving to your wife, You know, kind to your kids. He's really, really... Mm. urging people to be good. Okay. Now, in all these writings that we have, I do not see any, any impulse in the, in the original Christianity to go out there and try and change the laws. Now, there's one or two little references in Romans or something to saying, you know, obey the authorities, you know, okay. It's very, it's just in passing in my view. Now, we've got this situation where uh, the Christian right who I feel very at home with, okay, even though, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I think people can probably pick up, I don't sort of fully, I'm not completely convinced on the theology, but I feel very much at home when I when I go to a church and state conference that, that you held, Dave, I like these people. I feel like they're sort of family, okay. Uh, but I, I think that they are better off when they see a problem that they want to correct. I do not believe they should sit around and say, you know what we've got to do? We've got to get the legislature to change the laws, so the the government's got the state, to, got the power to come in and force behaviour. I believe what they should do is what we've seen this week with the, with the Yumi Steins book, and what we saw with Bud Light mm. in America. That's where the that's where their efforts should go. And guess what? On the other side, because we I believe in very much a free society, if people want to run a campaign saying this book should be uh, in the bookshops or in the schools or the libraries. If, free, if, if private citizens and groups want to run that campaign, they should be free to too. Now, if they run that yep. campaign and, and you and Rachel Wong and all the other good people run your campaign, I know who's going to win, Dave. I know who's going to win and we don't need the government involved. So I'm saying with all these things, let's have, let's have privately funded voluntary campaigns of good citizens on both sides slugging it out and then the marketplace will be the people. When you bring in the weapons of the government, that's when we get a distortion, and then we empower the government, and they can use that. Just they can use their increased power to one day turn on us, which yeah. is what they're doing with that. I, I, I agree with your sentiment. Uh, Christians who, I mean, there's levels of excuses and apathy, and and I think Jesus rejects them all. It's very, very consistent in Scripture that uh, the parables Jesus told was uh, advocating personal responsibility yes. and reliability for others. Um, he, he certainly exhorted us to be stewards of the gifts and opportunities and treasures and resources that we have to maximise them 
And his command was to make our number one priority the kingdom of God. You're right in that uh, the apostles and Jesus uh, never advocated any kind of political revolution or even reformation. But that political was in lobbying. a context, a political they, context, where they had no franchise, no vote, no yeah. representation, uh, and uh, significant threats to life uh, and limb if they spoke against the government. In fact, most of Paul's letters were written from prison. So even while he and Peter are advocating submission to the king and, and civil authorities, uh, they themselves had very bloody uh, martyrs' ends um, and and certainly not on the good side of the king. But well, well, Dave, you, you uh, it was also true that you... they advocated this massive reformation of the heart, and, and Jesus did certainly. And if people followed them, then we wouldn't need this debate because hearts would not be so corrupt as to sexualize children so young. But it is not an either-or proposition. We also do live in a representative liberal democracy where Christians, like every other constituency, is invited to influence public policy as well as culture. And so we should preach the gospel, preach the word of God, preach the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, and urge people to repent of their selfishness and wickedness, uh, like all of us have to, no one's more sinful than another, and and uh, humble ourselves, as the Constitution says, under the blessings of Almighty God. But at the same time, it would be recklessly hateful of Christians to leave these very important decisions to all of the worst hearts, darkest spirits, and most depraved agendas that are trying to determine the public policy in Australia, to leave these important decisions to other people because we want to change people's hearts is is really silly because we can walk and chew gum at the same time and okay. must. Dave, let, let's take a controversial issue. Let's take euthanasia. I'm guessing most of your viewers want the government to change the law to ban that practice. Okay. Now, what the, the, the purest libertarian, of which I am certainly sympathetic to, would say is this, if they, didn't, if they thought that it is a moral crime to engage in euthanasia. What they would say is, let the legislature do whatever they want. And in an ideal society, what we're going, we, and, and if, if, people, if the people out there who want to organise against euthanasia, mm. they've got the choice. Do they, do they set up a lobby group to try and twist the arms of legislatures? And then after you know, 20, 30 years, they might just change the law and make it a crime. And then they think, yay, we've won. Okay, that's option one. Now, option two is they say, let's not worry about the legislature. They can do whatever they want. Let's go and run a public relations campaign where we convince 100% of the people you should not engage in euthanasia because it's a moral crime and explain why it's a moral crime. And then you could have a situation where the legislature says, look, if you want to kill yourself, you can, no problem. But no one wants to do it because the, the anti-euthanasia people have convinced people that it's not a good thing. Now, that's the better society. That's the, that, I, I agree completely. And, and I, I believe I, that's I, what Jesus wants. Now, I... Um, I actually do teach that the way to end abortion is not just through legislation. We should have best possible legislation on abortion. Um, but the better and more effective way is to reduce the demand for abortion, that we, the church, the hands and feet of Jesus, can manifest such love and uh, value for life and motherhood that we, we stop the supply 
to the the wicked practice of the abortion industry, that we actually um, stop women feeling hopeless and and full of fear, um, or, or even better, that they have a better moral fibre which um, convicts them in their heart when they think about it and and realise that they are taking a living human's life. It's the same with euthanasia. We should invest heavily and promote palliative care and the end of suffering as a first and best solution to the demand for people who are afraid of suffering and death. And even more so, uh, the metaphysical questions that no legislation can answer about what happens after that decision. What happens next? Um, and are you absolutely certain that this life is all there is? This is, I, I agree completely, John, that this is something the church um, and, and all people of good conscience should focus their best energies on. But I don't agree that we should uh, not spend energy on best possible public policy. Okay, well, you, but you did earlier admit, Dave, that you did say, you did concede the point that, yes, the, the, the New Testament does not actually make any reference to going out and lobbying the government to change the laws. When you said, well, that was because they were sort of in a... They were repressed people at the time. Well, but not now, directly, now, but now. I think there's pretty good context for for demonstrating it. I mean, Jesus got right in the face mm. of the people who ruled the society at that time. Now, coincidentally, mm. um, they were in a theocracy and the social leaders were the religious leaders. And he, I, I look, some commentators, some of my fellow Christians are going to get a bit upset with me, but he tended libertarian, John. He really hated the oppressive burden yes. of overregulation. This much is indisputable. Indisputable. He okay. really rebuked people who misrepresented God's good law with lots of excessive regulation to the point of becoming an oppressive burden to people. But he also commanded us to change the world we live in and in no sphere spared to be a bright light, illuminating uh, goodness, justice, and the truth of the word of God, and repelling the darkness from every, every corner. And he certainly advocated that to be as public as possible, not private and personal and not just on Sundays. So the explicit wow. advocacy for democratic interventionism was not instructed in scripture, but the the principles that can be applied to different contexts. For example, I wouldn't suggest people do what I'm doing in China or Afghanistan right now. Totally different context. It's about stewarding for the kingdom of God and the flourishing of your neighbours uh, what opportunities we do have. Uh, one of the reasons why, or the primary reason why, I have a... Um, I'm open to Jesus being a divine figure. Now, I'll be honest, I think it's unlikely. I'm coming from at this from a secular point of view, but I cannot say it's impossible. And he's the only figure in human history why I think, you know, if anyone was connected to, you know, God, the maker of the universe, whatever it is, if anyone really was sent down to this little blue dot to sort of fix us up, I'd, it has to be Jesus, okay? And the reason why is, we look at the impact that he's had. So he gets killed in the, uh, about 30 AD. Within three centuries, the Roman emperor has come out and said, you know, and the Roman, you know, pretty powerful people. He yep. comes out and he says, I believe Jesus is the son of God. Okay, and then uh, about 60 years after that, 
Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's extraordinary story that this happened. Okay, now, and what were the fruits of that? One of Jesus' best sayings, which people don't often take account of, is he says, by their fruits you shall know them. Okay, what are the fruits of Christianity? Well, the Romans used to celebrate people like Julius Caesar. He's probably the most famous Roman of all time. And what Mm -hmm. made him first famous was he went up to Gaul, what we now call France, He spent 10 years there. He wrote these letters back. He says, look, I think I've killed a million of them in cold blood. And the Romans said, oh, that's just fantastic. We love you, Julie. You killed a million. We love it. Okay. <laughs> and, and then they used to have this Colosseum where they say, we'll, we'll go out and watch the football or the cricket, okay, or the tennis, and we like our sport. Well, their sport on Sunday afternoons or whatever it was used to be to sit around in the Colosseum, and there was Colosseums in all the major Roman towns. Um, and they used to just sit there and watch, drink wine, eat grapes, you know, and watching the Colosseum, slaves and, and captured people from, from warfare get having a two-hour battle with wild animals. And they thought, oh, that's fantastic. We love it. Now, when they became Christians, which was voluntary, the state didn't force it on them, okay, uh, these practices started getting phased out in a very, very big way, okay? Yep. And, 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 then, and then when the, and the Christianity spreads around the world, it goes to Scandinavia, and we have, and those Vikings used to be the biggest bastards of all time. Violent, cruel, thuggish, primitive people. They become Christians, and look at Scandinavia today. They're all nice people, right? Okay, and then and then slavery was a practice that happened all around the world, all around the world. Yeah. Okay, and people remember America. Okay, they remember America. Okay, well, America sort of you know was a Christian nation who fought a big civil war over it, and it was and the, the abolitionist movement was started by people who followed Jesus. Okay, and so then what happened was is it when the American Civil War sort of uh, ended slavery. They just felt, slavery felt like dominoes all around the world, okay, because of Christianity. So look, I think it's a magnificent thing, even if it's not true, but it's so magnificent, it might be true. But Dave, on this question about whether Christian political activists like yourself should be focusing time on trying to lobby for laws uh, and, 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 you know, and trying to get the government to, co- to legislate morality and to coerce behaviour, the truth is you and I, uh, uh, Dave, if we sat down and went through a hundred hot button political issues, we're going to agree on ninety out of a hundred. I would say you'd agree with that, right? We'd agree on most yeah, issues, if not more. That, that's right. Okay, so we agree on nine out of ten things. Now, then, what happens is you, you believe in lower taxes, you believe in free enterprise, you believe in deregulation, blah 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 blah. Things that are going to make Australia happier and wealthier. Okay, like the same things we believe now. Now then when I, look, this is an open question, okay, but then when we, when, when an element uh, that you know, is sort of like an ally um, of someone like myself, then makes a big song and dance about saying, look, we want to change the laws around these moral issues, I think it is possible that it detracts from all these other courts. Now, these, these abortion euthanasia come up once every 10 years in a, in a, in a court, in, in a parliament. I mean, 99% of legislation is an economic question. That's what it is, okay? Uh, and yeah. now, now, what we saw in the Supreme Court last year in the United States, they overturned Roe versus Wade. Now, someone who did a little bit of constitutional law at university, that was a no-brainer. 
Okay, they weren't right. uh, they weren't abolishing abortion. They you know right. the, you know what the American Supreme Court said was they said we're basically going to have the same abortion structure that we've got in Australia, which is the states are going to sort it out. Now it just happens to exactly be so. it just happens to be there's a majority in all the states in this country who who will vote in favour of you know fairly liberalised abortion laws. There are some states in America that will not. Okay, but what but 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 politically what's happened with the overturning of Roe versus Wade is the left has been able to come out and say the right wants to ban abortion. And that's why they didn't go very well in the midterms last year. That's why, you know, the silly Joe Biden and all of his, you know, crooked regime is still, you know, got the Senate and everything else. And, and, and so they have weaponized this where I think, are we better off the whole sort of movement, broadly spoken, the right movement, okay? Are mm. we better off if we say, look, we're not going to try and lobby on these moral issues. We're going to run, we're going to support uh, good, good people that we believe in policy. And we're going to run this you know, we're going to run a long-term campaign to try to convince everybody out there that it's in their own interest, that they believe it in their own heart, that they shouldn't engage in the practices that you and your viewers don't like. Uh, look, I, I don't think it was the campaigning on the right which led to that outcome, but rather the SCOTUS decision. The campaigning on the right never never changed for the last 50 years. That's, that's always been the case, and it didn't change uh, election outcomes. What did happen was the Supreme Court made a decision regardless of, of the activism. Uh, and it would be totally worth losing an election cycle to have that significant once-in-a-lifetime accomplishment. Uh, but the question really, uh, you know, like I accept the premise that we need to be wise in our campaigning, our messaging and our strategy. Uh, I wouldn't accept that a silence uh, a posture of silence would would be uh, in any way submitted to the will of God uh, in the way we represent, um, uh, I guess, his kingdom uh, with our vote, which I think really should be the, the paradigm question for us is, are we representing his kingdom with our voice and our vote? Um, and uh, I think it's really clear from scripture that silence is unacceptable. In fact, in Isaiah, uh, speaking for God, uh, the prophet says that God is surprised and disappointed uh, when his people don't speak up and intervene in the presence and case of injustice uh, and that it's it's lazy and wicked of us to sit on the sidelines while people are being oppressed. Yes, we need to change hearts and minds and the best way is to uh, bring people into a uh, what we can call a common morality. Um, as opposed to a common depravity. Um, but at the same time, uh, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Uh, well, yes, that's right. I agree with that. And I think that uh, we don't want to weaponize the state to enforce morality. I, I agree. Well, no, I don't agree. I think all of the states exist to enforce morality. Laws against theft and murder are enforced morality. What we can't enforce is spiritual devotion. It's not our business to interfere on. And that's what the separation of church and state means, is that government stays out of our relationship with God. But what God and the state are interested in is our relationship with each other. And and I think, again, the, the good I see in libertarianism is the value of using a small civil authority to prevent harm against people and uh, property. Uh, we do have to wrap it up. We've, uh, we're approaching an hour if we're not already over it. Uh, I do want to give you the last word before I, I say thanks and um, give last little housekeeping things to the viewers. 
Oh, Dave, I really have appreciated this this discussion. And, you know, I, I feel like we have fleshed out, you know, where we uh, have a lot in common, but where we do have important differences. And I'm sure that after listening to us for an hour, that all the viewers have, have, have are in agreement with everything that John Ruddick has said. It's beautiful, and it's been a great demonstration of uh, free speech in action, the contest of ideas with civility and sincerity. Uh, I appreciate your heart, and, and I'm looking forward to what you can achieve in the New South Wales Parliament over the next eight years. John Ruddick, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, David. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode of The Church and State Show. Uh, thank you very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed that. I would love to see your comments beneath this post, beneath this uh, video and media, whether you're listening on podcast or the ADH app or on the Good Source website. Uh, thank you for watching. Join the conversation there. Don't forget to head to goodsource.news to sign up to weekly newsletters and to the website churchandstate.com.au to sign up to event updates and to get your tickets for the coming conference in Perth on the 4th and 5th of August, in Adelaide on the 6th and 7th of October, and the summit in Brisbane, which people come from Perth to New Zealand to at the beginning of March every year. We've also got live studio experiences coming up in Brisbane in August, which I am absolutely sure you're going to find as much fun as this brilliant conversation I've just had with John Ruddick. That's going to be with Senator Malcolm Roberts. But that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for watching. My name's Dave Pello. God bless you and this nation. Bye-bye. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future. <laughs>